Open your Bibles back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. On a totally unrelated note, you know that you love a church family when one of their little ones comes up and grabs your hand and it is covered in snot. And you're okay with that to a degree. You realize in that moment, God has given me a love for people that I would not have on my own. And so I just want to say I love you guys, but please don't make me prove that by taking your snot or anything like that. Just take my word for it. And what I share today, hopefully will show that love as well. Uh, Because what we look at is important And I really want to beg your attention on this passage because it's about the person of our Lord. It's about Christ. Now last week, we began looking at the same theme we're going to carry on today in verse 22 through verses 56. There's one central theme. So there's three different accounts going on here. Four different encounters with Christ here. One main subject. And that is what we talked about last week. Encountering the divine. Or really encountering God. That's what we find with Jesus. As we look at these particular passages. Which are unique in the rest of the Gospels. Even up to this point in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen Jesus perform miracles and do works. And people respond with wonder at Him and awe of Him. They marvel at Him. They're encouraged by His works. They praise Him for His works. But these particular accounts, people respond in fear. Something about what Jesus does here in verses 22-56 through doesn't inspire awe as much as it inspires fear. So why are they fearing Jesus? What about these encounters with Him strike their hearts in such a way that they tremble at what He's doing? In fact, they all have problems. Each of these encounters, individuals, accounts, there's an issue taking place. The people have tried to correct the issue. They can't correct it. They want Jesus to correct it. But when He does correct it, they're terrified. And it's because... They've been given, in that moment, the fear of the Lord. We talked about that last week. And you remember, I made a distinction between what the fear of the Lord is. It's not like what I experienced when I woke up one morning with a mouse running across my arm in our bed. The fear of the Lord is not like the fear of first-time father has when his new baby has to have her diaper changed. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. We're talking about a godly fear that realizes the person of God. It's a realization of the Lord. Now I want to turn your attention to a verse, an intriguing verse in Exodus chapter 20. Actually, it's verse 20 that sheds light on this to some degree. We will actually reference this passage again in a few moments. But for the sake of clarifying what I mean by this fear that these people are having with Jesus and and it being the fear of the Lord, I want you to see Something Moses says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Moses says to the people, Do not fear, 
For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now that is a very curious verse. Intriguing, interesting. Because in one breath, Moses says, do not fear because God wants you to fear him. So there's a distinction in what he's saying there. There's, there's something more to, to just the surface level here. There's a different definition that he's using for the two words of fear in that one verse. He's saying, do not have this illogical, irrational, human-induced, emotional fear. Don't, don't be afraid of things. But, do have the fear of God. The fear of God is, like we talked about last week, that, that realization that He has all control. That He has all authority. He is the one with all power. He is the one who is almighty over all creation everywhere in the whole universe. He's the one that spoke everything into existence. And by association, He is the one we are all held accountable to. And He is the one we all have to give an answer to. And so when you realize the, the person of God, there is this natural fear of He is the God that I have to give an account to. That's why Proverbs 1, verse 7, one of the most famous verses pertaining to the subject says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. That's because the fear of the Lord is the realization of God and it is the introduction into the reality of God and you're standing before God. And that's what Moses is saying here. Don't be afraid of things in the world, but have a right understanding of God. Fear God. For a specific reason, he says at the end of verse 20, that you may not sin. The fear of the Lord is a warning post for us. When we realize the person of God, the power of God, the authority of God, we should be struck with a holy, godly reverence for Him so that we would not desire to sin against Him. So don't, don't fear human things, Moses says. Fear God so that you might not sin against Him. Realize who God is so that you won't want to be an enemy of Him. You won't want to transgress His law. You won't want to go against Him in your life. That's what we're talking about. That's the fear of the Lord. And something about what Christ does in these passages induces that fear in people. Where they realize there's something bigger and grander and greater going on here in this man than I realized before. There's something about him that makes me terrified. And it is that encountering his divinity. We talked about that last week in the same subject. Jesus is not just a man or a good teacher or an influencer, or a political rebel. He is God in the flesh and should be treated as such, right? Well, that's what these people come to a realization of. Peter, in his first sermon after having the Holy Spirit indwell him in Acts chapter 2, his sermon at Pentecost, he alludes to this fact. He says, we referenced it last week, chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested, confirmed, proved to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
the works of Christ are to attest to the person of Christ, the mission of Christ, the claim of Christ. They're to shed light and clarify that He is God, and that's exactly what happens in these accounts. He does a work that makes people realize He is God. They have just encountered the divine. And so as people in our world debate, and as we question and are tempted to doubt even the person of Jesus, if He is really God or not, these miracles should help attest that truth to us. So I hope you remember last week we looked at verses 22 through 25. He is asleep on a boat with His disciples. A storm starts to rage in verse 23. These professional fishermen cannot handle the storm. It's that serious. Verse 24, they wake Him and He rebukes the wind, the raging waves, and and they cease. The storm goes away. There's a calm. And His disciples are afraid. Now they have more fear of Him than they did of the storm. And they respond at the end of verse 25, Who then is this? Who is this man in the boat with us? That He commands even winds and water and they obey Him. They realize there's a greater significance in Jesus than what we first thought. We talked about last week how they had witnessed miracles of Christ before. They had seen Him work. Even in the Gospel of Luke, they've seen Him heal people and, and raise a widow's son. Verses 11 through 17 of chapter 7. They've seen Him do mighty supernatural things, but something about this calming of the storm strikes their hearts to where they realize this man is more than we thought. It's because Jesus has just done in that passage what only God can do. They've encountered the divine. And we carry that theme on here. Last week we noticed by taking uh, notice and note of certain things Christ has power over in this uh, long passage. We can see His divinity. Last week it was His power over nature, His power over creation. This week... We pick up in verse 26. It's his power over spiritual forces or the spiritual realm. Let's look in Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Speaking of Jesus and the disciples who were just referenced in that passage before, Luke writes and he says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, plural. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him in verse 30, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him three times in this, chapter, this passage, they begged him to let them enter there. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. 
And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. We'll stop there for now. So the second point in this group of passages is Jesus has power over the spiritual realm. Power over spiritual Forces, and you'll notice each passage progresses in severity of the issue and in perceived difficulty and impossibility, right? We've moved from just inanimate elements of creation in a storm to now a, a conscious, active, spiritual force. And as Jesus has reached the other side of this lake after calming the storm, verse 27, He's immediately met By this man who has demons. He's possessed. Now his possession has manifested itself outwardly. In in very clear ways. In very supernatural ways. And for the people around the locals in unexplainable ways. So what we know is that this man is not just influenced by an evil spirit. He's not just tempted by an evil spirit. He's under the control of demons. Mark chapter 5 shares the same story, but he elaborates just a little bit more than Luke. In Mark chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5, he has to say this about the man who's possessed. He says he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man was so possessed, no one, although they tried, had the strength to subdue him. Luke adds to that or, or repeats some of that. Verse 27, he says, For a long time the man had worn no clothes. And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Verse 29, Luke says, For many a time the demon had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This is a man who is not in his right mind. This is a sign of complete madness. Running around without clothes, not going home, with supernatural strength, breaking shackles, living in the cemetery. And Mark adds that, Powerful phrase, no one, although they tried, no one in the region, not a single person, had the strength to subdue him. What we read about in this passage is actually one of the strongest demonic possessions recorded in Scripture. And it's one of the most famous as well. In verse 30, Jesus asked, what is your name? And many people know the answer to this. The demon responds, Legion, 
for many demons had entered him. The, the, the place they're at, the region they're at, was a hub of the Roman army. So legions of Roman soldiers were stationed there. And the people knew that very well. A legion in the Roman ar- army consisted of about 5,600 people. This name is a play and a visual reminder of what's going on here. I am a legion of demons. Mark would say enough to possess about 2,000 pigs and kill them. This particular possession that we read about in this passage, church, is so powerful that it is a clear reminder of our weak, fragile, frail condition as humanity. And it's a reminder that apart from Christ, we have no ability to save ourselves from evil forces that do exist. It's a humbling kind of possession that no one had the strength to control. But something very amazing happens. In verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. Mark actually says he ran to him. And cried out in terror and fell down at his feet. It's an immediate recognition of supremacy. The demons here that no one had the strength to subdue, no one could control, that had the supernatural ability and supernatural strength, all of a sudden sees this man step onto the shore from a a boat with a bunch of other men, and he runs up to him, he falls down before him, crying out to Jesus, not to the group, not to anyone else, but to Christ. And he's immediately humbled before him. And he says in verse 28 with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? There is an admission there of Christ having control over him. What have you to do with me? And the demon answers the question that the disciples had in verse 25. They witness Jesus and they say, Who then is this? That He commands even winds and water and they obey Him. The demon knows it's Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And notice also what He says in verse 28. I beg you, do not torment Me. Some of your translations may say, do not torture Me. It is a... No contest admission of submission to Jesus. No arguing. No resistance. No rebellion. Simple admission of submission before Christ. I beg you, do not torment me. All of a sudden, this legion of demons that no one could control, recognizes a superior power in Christ. 
He notices the ability and the authority that Jesus possesses. And you realize it's just the mere presence of Christ without a word even being spoken that reduces the demons to begging for mercy. That lays them out prostrate before Christ. Church, we do not belong to a puny Savior. And we do not worship a weak God. Let me extend this out to the cross, if I may, for a moment. Do not ever think Jesus was forced at the hands of puny Roman soldiers to be nailed to a cross of wood. When he says in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I give it of my own accord. We know that to be true because of this account. These people, even the Roman soldiers probably would have intervened here, had no strength to subdue a demon, had no strength to subdue this man or or shackle him down. But just the presence of Jesus reduces the demonic forces to rubble. And then we think Christ was forced to the cross. No, Christ willingly goes to the cross to die for us. And then in John 10 when he says, no one will snatch you out of my hand, that is the same power applied here. Oh, take note of who we belong to. Take note of who we worship. Take note of who this Jesus is. And let all our casual thoughts of Him be dispelled. This demon immediately knows at the presence of Jesus, he is defeated. Now it goes even further, I think, in my mind. If the calming of the storm represents Christ's power over the physical elements of, elements of creation, this one most certainly shows his power over the spiritual realm of creation. But even more than that, I I just want to simply take note of the obvious. He has control over his enemies. His spiritual adversaries. Those who hate God and would do harm to creation and draw people away from God. and, And those who would delight to see God dethroned have to submit. Church, what we see here is when his adversaries are subject to His will, when His enemies are subject to His authority, we don't just see something small going on here. We see something significant happening here. We see divine authority in Christ. Divine authority in our Jesus. Because by the time Jesus is done speaking, and done rebuking, This man that no one had the strength to subdue, according to Mark, who had many demons in him, when Jesus gets done, he has none. This man who who was not clothed, had worn no clothes for some time, when Jesus gets done speaking, he is clothed. He lived among the tombs, but when Jesus gets done with him, he's going to be restored to his home. When he first encounters Christ, he's an enemy of God. When Jesus gets done with him, he's sitting at Christ's feet begging to go with him. When Christ showed up on the shore, he was out of control, out of his mind. When Jesus gets done speaking, 
he's in his right mind. That's the impact that the person and presence of Christ can have on people. It's complete and total change and restoration, isn't it? This is the power of Jesus. You notice even in verse 32, the third time that this demon is begging Jesus for something, the end of verse 32, he gave them permission. It echoes Satan's experience with Job at the beginning of Job, doesn't it? He could not tempt Job without the permission of God. These demons too must seek the permission of Christ to do anything. Well, quite naturally, verse 34 and 35, people want to see this. The herdsmen of the pigs have run into the city, terrified themselves. And they tell people what has happened. And the people in verse 35 went out to see what had happened. And they see Jesus. And they see this demon-possessed man sitting at the feet of Jesus and clothed and in his right mind. They knew of this man. Again, they've tried to contain him. They've exiled him to the cemeteries, to the tombs. And so naturally, when someone says, a guy's just healed him. Well, they want to know if that's true or not. They've never seen such power as this demon-possessed man has. They've never seen such uh, ability to, to wrench chains apart like this man has done. And so if there's someone that's healed him, he must be stronger than the demons. We have to see for ourselves. So they run out in verse 35. They find the man with Jesus. And guess what happens? They are afraid. The disciples were afraid. Now the locals are afraid. They knew the strength of this demon. Now what do you think they're thinking about the strength of Jesus? Just like the disciples were seized with fear in the boat, at the crossing of the lake, they became more afraid of Jesus than they did of the storm itself. And now we find the locals doing the same thing. They're now more afraid of Jesus than they were of the demons and the demonic possession. Because here's a man who acts out of his own will, his own power, his own strength, a superior strength. They have realized they are in the presence of someone with greater authority. This demon-possessed man was all they could handle. Probably more than they'd seen their whole life. Something they would never forget. It's so supernatural and beyond them. And yet there's one here who has greater strength. Greater power. The world often wants a direct manifestation of God, don't they? They often want to see God work through signs. These people got what they wanted and when the unveiled power and glory of God showed up, they were afraid. And so verse 37, they actually asked Him to depart from them. How tragic. For they were seized with great fear at Him. Christ exercises such pure and raw authority and control and power that they are frozen with fear at Him. 
So much so that they can't stand His presence. We need relief from You. We, we need You to lift Your hand from us. It echoes what we've already referenced and read in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. God has given the Ten Commandments. And in verses 18 and 19 of that chapter, this is what the people of Israel have to say about the presence of God. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain sp- uh, smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. There's this realization of the magnitude of God and that they are in His presence and they are afraid of Him. The exact same thing happens to Christ in Luke chapter 8. Such authority, such glory, such majesty on display through this miracle that the people can't stand His presence. They are frozen with fear. And so they ask Him to leave. Church, the presence of God always induces humility before Him. If you think you have met with God and you have met with Him in pride, you have not met with the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is so glorious and so bigger than us and so majestic that we are like Isaiah falling to the ground. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am coming undone in the presence of God. If you think you have been saved, yet you have never been humbled before God, you do not know the God of the Bible. Jesus has such glory radiating from Him. Even in His incarnation, people are humbled before Him, reduced before Him, realize that they are nothing in comparison to Him. So they beg for Him to leave. But notice verse 38. They encounter the divine and inevitably they fear Him and and they want relief from Him. But something else happens in verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged. So when he was possessed by demons, he's begged three times. Now he's not possessed by demons and he's still begging. Both the demons and the man who's been released from the demons have now recognized the authority of Jesus. And he begged him that he might be with him. Unlike the crowd, this man realizes, I want to submit to that man. I want to submit to such power. I want to belong to such a God. But Jesus sent him away, saying, verse 39, Return to your home, be restored to your family, and declare how much God has done for you. Who says that Christ never claimed to be God? Go to your people and declare what God has done for you. And then the man does this. 
he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Because for this man, by this point, there is no distinction between the two. Go tell everybody what God has done, so I'll tell everybody what Jesus has done. This man has encountered the divine in the person of Christ, and he's realized Jesus is not just some teacher, not just some man. He is God in the flesh. And so he tells me to explain and proclaim what God has done. It's the same as proclaiming and explaining what Jesus has done. What an encounter this man has had. Just like Peter preached, the works that Jesus does attest to His divinity. You can't miss it. Let's move rather quickly through the rest of the chapter. I would like to finish it this morning. So that's Jesus having power over spiritual forces which make people realize that He's God. Now, we see Jesus has power over even disease. Verses 40 through 48. As He's returning back to the region of Galilee, in contrast to the passage before, verse 40, there's a crowd that welcomes Him. They're actually waiting for Him. And there came a man, verse 41, in that crowd named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a high-profile, well-respected Jew. And he falls at the feet of Jesus, another sign of humility and submission, and he implores him, begs him. You see this theme keep coming up. Begs him to come to his house. Because he knows Jesus has some authority to do something. Verse 42, he begs him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. That's how this next portion begins. But as Jesus goes at the end of verse 42, the people pressed around him. Crowds are flocking to him. They're, they're suffocating him, walking down the narrow streets with him. Verse 43, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is the next individual we encounter. She had suffered from this sickness for 12 years. It's a disease, it's a sickness of longevity, isn't it? Much more than just the common cold. Much more than just a uh, natural human remedy could take care of. In fact, Luke tells us she had spent all of her living on physicians, on doctors. She couldn't be healed by anyone. Notice how the passage has progressed again in significance. Not only does Jesus have power now over inanimate storms or spiritual forces, He now has power over our bodies. Something we don't even have. Yes, we can move our muscles. Yes, we can think and speak and, and do things with our bodies. We can't heal ourselves. We can't grow a limb back. But here's one who has such power that he has power even over our bodies. It's, it's significant. It's personal. Because this man now who has power, Jesus, authority, can invade us. Invade our lives. Invade our personal space. And that's what he does with this woman. He encounters this woman who's had such a disease. She's so uncomfortable it's such a medical issue she's probably weak she's probably frail she's probably faint 
And she's in such discomfort. She's willing to sacrifice, give all that she has just to find hopefully maybe some cure. Doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. Give me some sort of relief. Maybe somebody will have an answer. And yet again, we encounter in this chapter an issue that nobody can resolve except Jesus. Disciples couldn't handle the storm. Jesus could. The community couldn't ha handle the demon-possessed man. Jesus could. This woman couldn't handle her disease, her 12-year discharge of blood. Jesus can, will, and does. She could not be healed by anyone. She had probably been told that she would never be healed, never be cured. She would never find a solution. It's a problem you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. And in her desperation, she presses through the crowd. Verse 44, comes up behind Jesus. And she thinks, if I just touch just the fringe of His robe, we're talking the very edge of His clothing. If I can just touch it, if I can just lay my hand on it from a distance in the crowd, maybe I'll, I'll be healed. So verse 44, she comes up behind Him, touches the fringe of His garment, and guess what? Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Twelve-year incurable issue in a single moment. Resolved by Jesus. In a single moment, just like we've seen all throughout this chapter thus far, Jesus has done what no one else could do. And He's displayed power over someone else's body. And I want you to notice the ease. She touched Him. And with such ease, He immediately healed her. Knowing what had just happened, Jesus says in verse 45, Who was it that touched me? You can imagine the procession of such a crowd and all the hustle and bustle around Jesus. And He stops and He says, Who just touched me? The disciples think this is absurd. Peter says, after everybody's denied it, I didn't touch you, I didn't touch you. Even though the crowd's pressing around Him. Peter says, Master, the crowds surround you and are, are pressing in on you. Have you lost your mind? People are touching you. But Jesus says, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Verse 47, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Because all of a sudden she's realized, not only does this man have the power to immediately heal me, but something nobody else could do, not even the best of doctors, but now he has the power to know me and I can't hide from him. So now she's trembling before him. She's afraid she's in trouble. She's afraid she's done something wrong. And falling down before him, just like the demons, she cries out loud, just like the demons. And in great humility, she declares in front of this whole crowd of people, I've had a discharge of blood for 12 years and I touched you without your permission 
but I was immediately healed. She too seized with fear at such ability of Christ to not only heal her, but know her, know that she was not hidden. But unlike the encounter with the demons, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Jesus doesn't cast her out of His presence. Verse 48, Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's an embrace. It's a show of care and concern. This power, this glory that melts this woman's soul is now directed at her, gazing at her, addressing her, and instead of getting on to her, embraces her as a daughter. Church, this is true for all who come to Christ in humble faith. And He embraces her with care, passion, love, even with pride. Daughter, your faith has made you well. My disciples didn't have faith a few days ago. They were afraid. You had faith and you were still afraid. It's because you've realized who I am. And your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This power that induced immediate fear in this woman's soul is also the same power that relieves her fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. What a beautiful dual concept that the presence of God can induce within us a reverent fear of God. And that reverent fear of God when realized through humility and faith relieves all fear of judgment and condemnation. The woman goes away in peace. Now real quick, stick with me please. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So we see uh, Christ exemplify power over disease. Now he's going to show power, number four, over death. Verse 49 through 56. And it's such a dire situation that someone comes up and says, don't even bother with it. She's dead. Don't trouble him anymore. Don't walk another step. Don't bring him to the house. She's gone. It's impossible. He can't do anything now. Death has seized her. You see again the impossibility building up here. I don't think we can handle this storm. I don't think that demon-possessed man will ever be free. I don't think I'll ever be cured. Now your daughter will never live again. But Jesus, verse 50, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be made well. He's been inducing fear in people's hearts this whole time. And now he wants to expel fear. He wants to remove fear. Because we're not talking about fear of the Lord. We're talking about fear of losing your daughter. And when he came, verse 51, to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And in the midst of laughter and mockery, verse 54, he took her by the hand and he called, saying, Child, arise. And notice how Luke rephrases this in verse 55. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. 
What man is this? We, we now want to echo what the disciples said in verse 25. What man is this that can call back the spirit of a person after they die? Jesus does that. And the, the daughter, 12-year-old girl, sits up. She's awake. This breathless, lifeless body opens its eyes, breathes again, moves its muscles, sits up and he says, get her something to eat and she eats. In verse 56, her parents were amazed. They marveled. They're in awe. They charged them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus not only has power over disease to help humanity, He has power over our greatest enemy, death. To give us life and to redeem us from the grave. If anything here, we've learned just from the healing of the diseased woman and the dead young girl that Christ has power over everything. What is there that's not subject to His will? And then we say the ultimate power of Christ is on display at the cross. Isn't it? Because this, this same Savior who called back the Spirit to this young girl is the same Savior who breathes life into our dead spirits and salvation. Not only does this Jesus change the way we interact with God, change the way we worship, change our devotion, our loyalty and allegiance, it should do all of those things, but this Jesus should also confirm to us the security of our salvation. One, let the fear of the Lord rest upon our hearts. This is the Jesus we transgress. This is the Jesus we reject. This is the Jesus we sin against. This is the Jesus that we disobey. And yet, in the very same other hand, if we come to Him in faith, in humility, and we... we are saved by Him, born again, we have no reason to question the security of our salvation. Such power will immediately be devoted to us. Love us. Care for us. Provide for us. Protect us. This is our Jesus. This is who we walk with. Who we belong to. Who we pray to. Oh, how I think this should rest upon our souls because it changes everything about our Christian faith. Because this is the Jesus who looked at us when we were yet sinners and said, I in all my glory love them enough to die on a cross. Paul, chapter 2 of the book of Philippians Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus, who possessed such power as we witness in Luke 8, loves you enough to humble Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. I implore you, place your faith in this Jesus for salvation. Trust in Him, and He will save. And no one will snatch you out of His hand. No one will remove, remove you from His love. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, Romans 8. This Jesus wants a relationship with you. Only realize who He is like these people did. Encounter the divine. And realize that you can't just ignore this Jesus. You have to do something with Him. And believer who has been born again, you should be changed in your devotion when you read about this Lord who loves you. You worship differently. You evangelize. You meet with Him daily. Pray fervently. Study the Word. You walk with Him. Because He's worth that. Such glory and majesty and power wants to walk with us. Lord, I thank You for the patience of these people to hear Your Word this morning. And I pray, O oh God, that just maybe it would shatter the stone heart of unbelievers this morning. That they too would Realize who you are and come to you in faith. Oh Lord, it is so hard for me to communicate what truths are going on here and how significant they are. Every human word seems to be inadequate. So Lord, we leave this all up to you this morning. We beg of you in the power of your Spirit to sit upon our hearts and let this truth sink so deeply within us. And not only bring the unbeliever to salvation this morning to faith in You, but those of us who have been born again, who know that salvation, let us be in awe of who You are, Lord. And what love was displayed at the cross in light of Your authority. And how secure we are in You. Thank You, Jesus, for that love. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.